for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Jesus. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the temple, of the tomb, excuse me. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who saw where he was laid. Let's pray together. Gracious God and eternal Father, uh, please, please make so much of yourself and your son this evening. Your son who bled and died for our sin as your word is preached. And may each of our lives be brought into line to what your purposes are this evening. And so we would need your help at all points because, God, we can't do anything as we should without your help. So for Jesus' sake, please hear us and help us now. Amen. The burial of a loved one gives, in a way, nothing else really can, the reality and the finality of death. That's probably one of the reasons why many, on account of the painfulness of the parting, which is so terribly obvious and felt in a cemetery, have often chose to leave the cemetery before the grave itself is sealed. I was thinking that every funeral I've officiated, I can think of only two where everybody stayed till the end. It's all understandable. Oftentimes the whole circumstance is just too much for people. The moment has overwhelmed them. The finality of what is taking place, the finality that the person is gone and that any potential for a conversation, for a touch, for affection, for just a walk, it it no longer remains on this earth. They are buried, they are in the ground, and they are dead. And part of the reason why I say to you this this evening is because in the early church, when they determined to summarize the teachings of the New Testament to defend the church against heresy and to give doctrinal certainty, they wrote what some of you might know as the Apostles' Creed. And this creed, which was not written by the original apostles, but those who were leaders in the church a few centuries later, nevertheless, the creed affirmed not only the fact that Jesus suffered and not only the fact that Jesus was crucified and that he died, but the creed also affirmed the fact that Jesus was buried. And the reason why they affirmed this was to drive home the point that yes, Jesus really did die because, yes, Jesus really was buried. In the early centuries of Christianity and at times today, there would be those who say, well, Jesus really didn't die. In fact, a good Muslim would not believe that Jesus died on the cross. Some say that his death was just some type of illusion, so it just seemed like he died, that he he passed out from all his sufferings, but then somehow or the other he was self-revived when he went into the cool tomb 
then he managed to get up and get out and get on with things. But what I want you to see is the evidence that is given to us here in Mark's gospel lays all that seemed like he died silliness to rest. And please remember, or please realize this if you've never heard this before. The gospel accounts are not written as fictional or mythical accounts. Uh, in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit. No. They are written as historical accounts which were dependent on witnesses and which were researched with question and answer sessions. And therefore, the gospel could be and must be and can be judged as such. And equally, and this might be even more important, this means that if we approach the Bible only on a personal, devotional level, you will only receive far less than, than half of what the Bible wants to tell you and what you need to know. So one of the things I would like you to see and consider this evening is that Mark was very careful to make much of the death of Jesus, yes, but also the burial of Jesus. And you'll notice this if your Bible's open. Within just a few verses, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea was asking for the body of Jesus. He wanted to give Christ a proper burial in a proper place. Verse 44, if your Bible's open, Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus has already died. Verse 45, having been given the professional opinion of the centurion, a person who would have overseen many a crucifixion and would know the difference between a dead man and an exhausted man. Once Pilate received the centurion's report, he, verse 45b, gave the body, gave the corpse to Joseph. And then part of Joseph's response to, to Pilate giving him the body of Jesus was verse 46 to purchase some linen cloth and then taking that cloth and with a friend as we read of in, in John's gospel begins to give Jesus a proper burial. Now, if as we said in the beginning that the pain of a cemetery chases many of us out of it, surely one of the reasons probably is... That when we get there, death confronts us with the reality of our own mortality. With the reality that life is really very brief. With the reality that death is the destiny of every one of us. With the reality, maybe for some, that we are not as secure with our pending death as we thought we were. Which is why wonder upon wonders, when a man or when a woman or young person is confronted with the fact that de of death, then death can, can finally be the gateway to true life. Okay, yes, uh, when uh, people die, sometimes our reaction is we get a better diet or we buy a better car because we only live once and, and we would understand that. But consider for a moment how many deal with death in our day. For example, and you see this all over the place, when a person dies of a disease because of old age, many call this a natural death, reserving unnatural death for accident or foul play or an untimely death of a young person, as if death was designed. But the Bible says, no, no, death was not designed. Death in its fullest meaning is penalty. Therefore, in the truest sense, death, all death is entirely unnatural because the world as we have it is not the way that God made it 
at first. Death was not designed. So some say death is is natural part of life, or some just shrug death off. To think about death, they say, is too gloomy and healthy-minded people uh, should not do this. But, but listen, how wise is it to ignore the one thing that is life's one and only certainty? Loved ones, sooner or later, death will intervene to stop our life. I read this week, Philip of Macedon had his servant remind him every morning, Philip, remember that you must die. And of course, there are some who get rattled or embarrassed if you speak of death or dying in their company. But here's the thing. What Mark is pointing out to us is that the death of Jesus Christ proved to be the decisive moment that transformed Joseph of Arimathea from someone who lived previously uh, with a kind of secret shadowy belief in Jesus, a secret shadowy devotion to Jesus, to one who is now prepared to live with the fallout of being identified fully with that same Jesus. Now, I want you to think, because that could be some of us here this evening. We have kind of a shadowy devotion to Jesus. We would never, at least not at this point, be ready to go public with Jesus Christ in any meaningful or relational way. We'll go to church, yes, but we won't go public, public with Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised at this. Read your Bible, read your history books, read your newspapers. Jesus gave some of the most difficult sermons to hear the larger the crowds became, became. People deciding to leave Jesus when the free gift of salvation offered by him also came with a price tag from him of total surrender to him. Or your friends or social pressures come in and says, now come on now. Are you really going to believe all this silly talk of Satan and a virgin birth and and this man's death has any value at all in this uh, 21st century digital technocratic? Surely God must be dead because why is evil and suffering still around age? A world that we live in that constantly questions the reality, the certainty, and the goodness and the wisdom of God. But Mark says, listen... Listen, death can be the gateway to real life. So I only have three points. They're, they're pretty brief. The first one is this. A man who takes his stand for Jesus. Right? A man who takes his stand for Jesus. Jesus had died at mid-afternoon on Friday. Evening was coming, and so the body had to be removed from the cross and buried very quickly so as to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, how is that going to happen? Well, there is a man who takes his stand, Joseph of Arimathea, and he begins to provide all that is needed. So let's just talk about him for a second. This, this man, Joseph, was a respected man. You see in your Bibles, verse 43, a prominent member of the council. Well, what council? That was the Sanhedrin. The very Sanhedrin who, who called for the death of Jesus. So he was a respected man. He was also a very rich man. Matthew 27 tells us this. He was also a religious man. Mark writes, verse 43b, Joseph was waiting for or he was anticipating the kingdom of God. In other words, he was a faithful Jew. He read his Old Testament. He understood that there was coming a day when the king of the Jews would come. Just like Simeon in Luke's gospel, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
So he was reading God's promises and he was waiting for God's promises. So Joseph was respected, he was rich, he was religious, but there's more. Matthew's gospel tells us that Joseph was actually a disciple of Jesus. And John's gospel tells us a bit better that the Joseph of Arimathea that we're reading about was actually a secret disciple of Jesus being afraid of his brothers on the Jewish council. And Luke tells us that he did not consent to the Sanhedrin decision to put Jesus to death. But, and here's the deal, it took the death of Jesus to finally bring him out into the open. Do you know your Shakespeare? There is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood changes everything. That's me, not Shakespeare. In other words, there are these decisive moments in our lives which come and which we can never, ever be the same again because of those moments. I'm going to say that again because sometimes our age can seem so boring. There are these decisive moments in our lives which come and which we can never, ever be the same again because of them. And as you think about this, the argument from conscience is that as Joseph considers the cross, and actually, you can't see it in the English, but you can see it in the Greek. It's verse 43 at the end. He went boldly. The idea is that there was a moment in time. This is the way it's written. There was a moment in time when Joseph said, enough. Enough. I must do the right thing here. So he leaves the shadows, he steps forward, and this man finally takes his stand. Okay, and that's the first point, which takes us to our second point. The man who takes his stand has a plan. And Mark tells us that Joseph, coming out of the shadows, makes a request to Pilate. Verse 43, asking Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now I want you to listen. Secular history tells us that as cruel as a crucifixion was... It was just as cruel what took place after the crucifixion. So when the body was dead, hanging on the cross, the person was essentially property of the state. And the state rarely gave that body up. And the bodies were typically hanging there there on the cross for two days. And and even after they had died, the bodies, uh, some were left to rot. And they were devoured by birds and other creatures. And finally, they were removed from the cross. And they were thrown into, pay attention to this, an open communal pit. Essentially, a, a mass grave for the, quote, wicked. Golgotha is the name of the place, the place of the skull. It was named the place of the skull because, as you can imagine, skulls were there. Crucified bodies just tossed in and would rot out being scavenged by wild animals in time. And then that was the norm. So it was not normal. It was not routine for a body to be asked for. But the man who took a stand had a plan. And the courage that he had been missing from from this respected, rich, religious man up till this moment suddenly appeared. And again, this makes complete sense to me. Jesus was lovely and pure and perfect and true as he walked this earth. And Joseph evidently was honest enough to to see this. And he then on some level knows, I've wasted three years. Three years living in the shadows, playing the game. uh, Just a thin coat of Jesus. uh, Just a dash of Jesus. But you want to say Jesus isn't a condiment. He's the king of the universe. 
And so then death comes, and the death of Jesus becomes that moment for an honest, open, finally honest, open life for Joseph. Pilate, that's verse 44, as you can see, his only concern is in the routine. Is he really dead? Yes, he is. Okay, verse 45, you can have him. It was only hours before Pilate was saying, what shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? He was trying to see if he could save Jesus. He admitted Jesus did nothing wrong. However, Pilate's conscience appears to have died when Jesus died. It's over. It's done. Finish. Now, loved ones, as you consider these things, I say say this to you because I have to say this to you. When your conscience is stirred by the word of God, when you're faced with the fact of your own mortality, and you're wondering, what am I going to do with this Jesus who is the Christ? And the evidence of the gospel comes to you clear and certain, and it comes in power. Please hear me. On that day, on that day, do not harden your heart. Because you have no guarantee that a day like this will ever come again. The gospel was given full-blown to Pilate. It was standing right before him. He had his chance. He let it go. Secular history tells us he never had another chance again. There is a tide in the affairs of men and women when taken at the flood lead on to fortune. But when it's not taken, when it's not taken, as Pilate would discover, it leads only to misery and to shallowness. Jesus is dead. Pilate says, do what you want with the body. Who gives a rip? It's all over. Now what's for dinner? I'm starving. First point. The man who takes his stand. No more in the shadows with Jesus. This man has a plan. Do the right thing starting now. Righteous man, proper burial. Final point. This man with the plan is actually part of God's plan. Joseph of Arimathea buys a linen cloth, wraps the precious body of Jesus in it. Jesus' body will not be dumped in Golgotha, but will be placed in the tomb of the rich. So as this historically verifiable scene takes place, we have the fulfillment of what Isaiah wrote 800 years before it ever happened. Isaiah 53, 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, that is, with the two robbers which hung with Christ, and with the rich in his death. Okay, two graves, what's happening? Well, this is what's happening. In the providence of God, God takes all of man's stumblings and bumblings and foolishness and idleness and saves his son from the disgrace of what would normally happen to a victim of crucifixion by placing Jesus in a tomb. A tomb. So when the resurrection comes, and this is what I love about God, he misses nothing. When the resurrection comes, there would be no question The tomb is empty. The body's not there. Normally, as I said, Golgotha, communal field of death. Bodies tossed in like garbage. How would we know if Jesus really was risen? He needs a tomb. Assign him a tomb. He needs a man with a plan, fulfilling God's plan. And that's Joseph of Arimathea.
It's time. It's time. Okay, but as you consider this whole thing, Jesus must have a tomb, but not a hotel room, right? Because one of the things that becomes very clear was that Joseph wasn't packing Jesus up for only a few nights' stay. If you read John's Gospel, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe mingled to uh, embalm the body of Jesus. So they weren't dressing him for Easter. In Joseph's mind, the king is dead. The kingdom is over. Yes, I'm taking my stand to do the right thing. Finally doing everything right. Finally in that context, what is the right thing to do for the pure and perfect and heart and good Jesus who was crucified as a criminal, even though he wasn't, will give him a proper burial. He, he will not be buried with the wicked. So verse 46, you'll see this. If your Bible's open, the tomb's cut out of the rock and it's ready. And the tombs that, at that time could hold up to 60 bodies and sometimes only tombs for small family. Nevertheless, the tomb belonged to Joseph. It was new and it was a garden tomb. And the stone is rolled to seal that tomb. And again, Joseph's conscience is in full bloom. I messed up before, but not now. What's the right thing to do here? Take your stand with that man, a proper burial, no Golgotha field of death. And by the way, John's gospel also tells us that there was another guy just like Joseph of Arimathea. His name uh, was Nicodemus, right? A rich man, okay, respected man, religious man, who came to Jesus in the cover of darkness. And Jesus did the same thing here. He explained to him the need to be born again by the power of God. Uh, Nicodemus couldn't grasp this. But in actual fact, Joseph and Nicodemus were not that unusual. Listen to what John tells us. John 12, 42. Many even among the leaders believed in Christ. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Now just bear with me just for a moment. This is how my mind went. Okay, you have a rich, respected, religious man. And I'm thinking, holy cow. That sounds a whole lot like some of the average middle class or upper middle class people in the world. Very religious. Pretty well off. At some level, respected. And they'll say, like, I'll take Jesus just in case, shadow a relationship, hiding in silence, but I can't have him trouble me with, with the rest of this stuff. He could be my savior. But I'm not sure if he could be my king. So I want to say to you with all the love of my heart that you may be here and you're just like Joseph of Arimathea. You're just like Nicodemus. You have thought enough to bring yourself to the point that you believe Jesus is the son of God. Good. And you've come tonight because you believe that he died for sins. Good. But you remain unconverted. You are an unconverted believer. You have an intellectual assent. You believe it. But that's where it ends. And you're living in the shadows. And you're keeping everything in secret. And maybe even under the cover of this building. I mean, it's so easy in our context to do that. We go from here and then we scuttle on to the next place and scuttle into the next place. And nobody has to know that we belong to Jesus Christ. It's a burden in our age. So I want you to look at the text, verses 45 through 47. The one thing becomes clear. Uh, Joseph wasn't packing Jesus up for only a few nights' stay. But again, it took the death of Christ to destroy Joseph's secrecy. It took the cross of Christ to bring Joseph out of the shadows. 
So if you're here tonight and you're a secret disciple, you believe but you don't confess, you enjoy the safety and good feelings of a person like Jesus, but that's it. Let me just ask you this. What was the right thing for Joseph and Nicodemus to do in their circumstance? Well, the right thing is to give, give a guiltless man a proper burial. And they did that. What is the right thing to do for a 21st century man or woman or young person still dead in their sins? Still religious, but not converted. It's pretty simple. I mean, I did this when I was seven. <laughs> I cried out to Jesus. Repented of my sins. A seven-year-old can have sins. And then did my best to try to live unashamed as his disciple. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. Romans 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess your faith. And are saved. Jesus, Luke 9, ashamed of me and my words. Son of man will be ashamed of us before the Father. Joseph came out of the shadows to the unashamed identification with Jesus. Uh, when did he become a Christian? Well, we're not sure. The Bible doesn't say. But we do know this. There was a time when he was afraid of his friends and afraid of his colleagues and afraid of what people would say. And then the death of Jesus began to change that. So again, is that any of us here this evening? If it is, then how about tonight, Good Friday 2015? Let the death of Jesus Christ change you. Take your stand. Openly stand with Jesus. No hiding. No secrecy. Just repent. Confess. And believe. Because Jesus is alive. And Jesus is coming soon. A guilty conscience is a great blessing. But only if it drives us to Christ. Let's bow together and pray as we prepare for the receiving of communion. And if those who will be serving communion would come forward. Father, I give you glory this evening. Because in the crucifixion and resurrection, you cover everything. Nothing's left to chance. All was divine plan. So that every question might come would be answered completely. And fully. Well, Father, help us now as we go to your table and receive of the bread and juice in the name of Christ. Amen. It's going to read three verses from Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities. And carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. Smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray together, please. Our gracious God and Father, when we think about your holiness, we are left devastated by our sinfulness. Your word tells us that we're not what we ought to be, and, and we are certainly not what you've you made us to be. We are marked by sin and rebellion. Too easily, Father, we um, can point out the sins of others, behaving as if we perfectly are righteous. And in all this, we've turned our back on you, rebelling against your rightful place as ruler of our lives, or behaving as if the death of Christ on the cross was barely necessary for us. And yet Jesus spilled his red blood so that our dark hearts would be made clean and we would know ourselves forgiven. In our place, condemn Christ stood is a truth which we cherish and we cling to. And Father, we recognize that we might know all about this, but we may never have honestly given ourselves to this. So we would pray that no one would leave this place this evening without having given themselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ and be granted that great gift of his righteousness, his adoption, sanctification, and promised eternal life. So we thank you for the body of Christ given in the bread. We thank you for the blood that was spilt represented in the juice. For without both, our situation would be absolutely hopeless. And so, Father, we thank you that in Christ we are not hopeless. We are forgiven, and we know ourselves loved with the exact same love that you have for your Son. Thank you, Father. How could we ask for more? In Christ's name we say these things. Amen.